As you're being seated, if you'll open your Bibles or turn them on to Matthew chapter 20, I, I want to start out with a question. In fact, I'm going to ask quite a few questions throughout the sermon today, but here, here's the first question. Is God fair? Is God fair? Now, have you ever pondered that? Have you ever thought about this question, is God fair? Because it's a big question, and it's what I would call a collision questions. Collision questions are these areas where our theology and our culture sometimes find themselves colliding. Now, if you read the news and keep up with what's going on, you know that these collision questions have been stopping traffic of late. Uh, A few weeks ago, we saw a collision question when the biblical ancient concept of what marriage is collided with what is now the legal concept of marriage. Uh, This week, we saw another one of these collisions when the uh, the biblical concept of of the value of unborn life, and, and as believers, we believe that life is not spontaneously accidental, that life has divine design, that children are a blessing from the Lord, that life uh, demands of us to see it with dignity, uh, to treat it with respect, and that even in the mother's womb, that life has value because we have a creator. And we saw a collision between that concept of what life is and the legal cultural concept of the value of unborn life. Now, one of the biggest areas, though, where theology and culture collide is in this concept of fairness. Because equality and fairness, they are, they are foundational to who we are, particularly here within the United States. I mean, we've heard the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are what? Created equal and that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so because of that, within our culture, this concept of fairness, it's it's a major theme of what it means to be American. And fairness has become one of the top arguments that atheists might hurl against Christians to try to throw us off our game. They'll say things to us like, well, how can you worship a God who allows all this injustice in the world and allows suffering, and how can you call this God good and and worship and love that God, and yet there's so much inequality and so much injustice in the world? Fairness has become one of the main reasons why people leave the faith as well. In fact, we we have somewhat of an epidemic going on within Christianity right now, and that is that uh, young children will grow up in the church, they will become believers, and as they get to college or young adulthood, they begin to abandon their roots. And what often happens is that something disappointing occurs. It might be the death of a loved one, it might be uh, love that didn't bloom the way they thought it would. Whatever it is, something disappointing occurs, and because of that, uh, we respond with anger towards God, and we begin to abandon our roots and abandon our faith because we feel as though somehow God has been unfair to us. Now, I want to submit two ideas for you today to think on 
And I hope that in the coming days beyond this sermon, that you'll continue to ponder these ideas. The first is this, that when it comes to God, we really don't want fairness. And the second is that God, in His goodness and in His love, has given us something that is better than fair. Now let's start with the first idea. When it comes to God, we really don't want fairness. Now there's a lot of areas of life where you want to be treated fairly. And don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not against treating people fairly and and treating people uh, as as all created by God and and loved by God. I'm, I'm not against the general concept. And there's a lot of areas where we want people to treat us fairly. When Des Bryant catches the ball and then makes two steps and then an obvious football move in reaching out towards the goal line, when that type of event occurs, we want to be treated fairly, right? And and when we're treated unfairly, even months later, it still stings. When the presidential election comes down to just a few hundred votes in Florida. You want to be treated fairly. You want to make sure that everything is handled in an equitable, fair fashion. Whenever your seven-year-old sister gets two pieces of pizza and you only get one piece of pizza and you're five years of age, you want to be treated fairly. I learned that in my household this week. Okay? And so you will scream and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth until you're treated fairly. And so basically, here's how, here's how it, it plays out. When you've done the right things, when you feel as though you've performed, whenever you feel as though you've done what you're supposed to do, then you simply want to be treated fairly. And, and you get upset when someone doesn't treat you with fairness. Now, there are some times in life, though, when you don't really want to be treated fairly. I was driving down the street some time back, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw that there were some red and blue lights flashing. And so I ascertained that this was the long arm of the law, and that they desired to have a dialogue with me. And so I pulled my car over to the side, and he asked for my license and registration, and he informed me that my registration for my license plate was expired. That was back in the day where you used to have stickers on the back. You remember those days where you used to have stickers on the back of the plates until people started stealing the stickers and putting it on their own plates, and so they changed it around. And so I was guilty. I had no defense. My registration was expired. He went back. He, he ran my license. He looked at my insurance, and then he came up, and he talked to me, and he said, why haven't you gotten your license plates renewed? To which I responded with, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I was, I was got busy, and, and, all, and it just got past me. And so I was fully expecting a ticket, and then he said to me, good news for you. You are still within the grace period. And so even though I had broken the law, even though I was deserving of the ticket, he chose to extend to me 
something better than what was fair, he chose to extend to me some grace. There are times when you've messed up, when you are deserving of consequences. And it's in those times that fairness is the last thing that you really want. Now, in Scripture, there is this repeated truth that all of us have sinned against God. Uh, You find it all the way back in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 7, 20. There is certainly no no one that is righteous on earth who does good and never sins. You go to Isaiah 53 and verse 6, and it talks about how we all have turned astray like a sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. One of the more famous verses of Scripture in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and do you know the end of it? And fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So throughout all Scripture, there is this truth taught over and over and over again that all of us have broken the law, that all of us have sinned, that we have done things that are wrong. Now, one of the things that was both radical and foundational to the teaching of Jesus is that he preached a message that we call the gospel that says that on your own, within your own ability, you will always fall short of the standard of God. In other words, this idea that the way in which God measures us is based upon the scales, that if you do more good than bad, then God loves you, and if you do more bad than good, then God rejects you. This karma, you sow good karma, and if you get enough good karma, then you're taken in, and if you have enough bad karma, then you're reincarnated or despised. Uh, That that idea is is not a a biblical idea. Uh, Jesus came onto the scene, and he said, basically, there is a universality to our sin. And on your own, the wages of your sin is death. You will face both physical death and a spiritual death. But then Jesus also taught this message, which is reiterated all throughout the Scriptures, that God, in an extravagant and sovereign act of love, chose to extend to us something that is exponentially better than fairness. He extended to us His grace. And we can be forgiven, and we can be made new, and we can be loved by God in such a way that it is not performance-based, that it is grace-based, and God can see us in Christ, and when we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, this truth is illustrated in our parable today. We're working our way through many of the parables of Jesus. And so, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable. Now, it helps you to have the context of the parable. In Matthew chapter 19, there was a young man that came to Jesus that has commonly been called the rich young ruler. And the young man had his heart stirred towards spiritual things, but there was one thing that was keeping him back from truly following Christ. He could not let go of the things of the world to truly give his heart to God. 
And so Jesus then says, you know, whenever you find yourself with great wealth, and virtually all of us as Americans, if we look at ourselves within a global concept, we have great wealth. And so this really applies to all of us. Jesus said, if you find yourself with great wealth, it is difficult for you to come to the kingdom of God because you're so busy hanging on to all these things that you have in the here and now that you struggle to truly embrace the spiritual and you struggle to truly give the totality of yourself to God. And so Peter, and I love the apostle Peter within scripture, he decides that he's got something to say. And so there in Matthew 19, he basically says, Jesus, we've left everything. We've left our families. We've left our careers. We've left everything to follow you. I'm Americanizing here. What's in it for us? What do you got for us, those of us who have left everything to follow you? And so Jesus tells this story in Matthew chapter 20. I begin in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers on one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, picture the scene. We have a fairly wealthy individual. He is a landowner. He goes out before the sun comes up to hire some people to work in his vineyard. And so he drives his F-150 up to Lowe's. Now, for some of you to embrace the story, it needs to be a Silverado or something like that. For me, it's a 15-passenger van these days, okay? So you drive your vehicle up to Lowe's, and there there's some people that are desiring work. And so he hires them, and he agrees to pay them the standard rate, one denarii. Denari. That was the standard rate for a day's pay. And so as the sun is coming up, these workers are out in the fields. Well, around 9 a.m., the landowner goes back to Lowe's to get some more. I don't know, maybe he was going back there to get some supplies. And the story picks up in verse 3. When he went out about 9 in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And to those men he said, you also go to my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. Now, notice three things here. Number one, he did not hire these men based upon their merits. The Scripture clearly says that they were out there doing nothing. They were standing around. He didn't collect resumes. He didn't go through HR. He just hired these men who were doing nothing. He also, in this case didn't even tell them what the salary was going to be. He just said, I will pay you whatever was right. And thirdly, he was the one that was going to determine the definition of right payment. They didn't form a union. There were no negotiations. He was the one that was going to form. He was going to determine what was right payment. Well, in verse 5, about noon and at 3, he went out again and did the same thing. And then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they said to him. You also go to my vineyard, he told them. So the scene repeats itself three times, at noon, 
at three, and then at five. Now keep in mind that the work day back in biblical days would last basically from the time the sun came up until about six o'clock in the evening. And so he's out hiring people at five o'clock in the evening. They're going to work, math genius I know, they're going to work about one hour. Now those that had been in the field working all day probably were not that upset to see reinforcements come into the field. And so they thought, well, hey, the landowner's bringing us more help. I'm good with that. And all these people were working in the field together doing the work of the landowner. Well, in verse 8, evening came, and the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. And when those who were hired, about five came, they each received one denarius. Now, the sun is about to set, and so the owner of the vineyard calls his chief officer, and he says, I want you to pay these men. Now, understand something about these folks. They were poor. They were poor. They didn't wait till the 15th and 30th to get paid. They needed their pay each day because the money they made, that was what they were going to use to buy dinner that evening. They were living literally day to day. And so the landowner begins with those who started in the field last, and he hands them a full day's pay, one denarius. Now that had to cause a rumble amongst the workers. They got a full day's pay. And so in verse 10, when the first ones came, they assumed they were going to get more. So those that had been out in the field since 6 in the morning see the guys that had been in the field since 5 in the evening get one denarius, and they think to themselves, this guy is going to be generous. This guy is going to give me above and beyond even what he promised. But then they also receive what was agreed upon. They receive one denarius. And so they receive it. And verse 11 says, they begin to complain to the landowner. Verse 12 says, these last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden. Actually, you've got to read this a little bit whiny. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day and the burning heat. Basically, they're, they're saying, God, that's not fair. Now, ironically, I've, I've seen this scene repeated multiple times amongst God's people. God, it's not fair. God, I grew up in church. I, I was saved at age six. I went to camp. I, I waited until marriage. I listened to Petra instead of Van Halen. Okay. I've got my fish on the back of my 15-passenger van. So why? Why is my life hard? 
And I look over here and I see these people and it seems like their life is easy and I see what these people have and what these people... It just doesn't seem fair. God, my preacher keeps preaching all this grace stuff, okay? Every, every time I go to that church... He keeps talking about this thing called the gospel and that uh, we are who we are because of the grace of God, not because of what we've done. And, and, and he talks about grace over and over and over again. But as I think about it, God, what that means is that anyone who believes can become a Christian. And that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, after all, if I'm drawing up my own religion, there's going to be some people I'm going to keep out. There's no way I'm going to let you into my religion because it wouldn't be fair. And yet within this grace system, anyone who repents of sin and believes in Jesus is forgiven and and they experience the grace of God. God, this just doesn't seem equitable. It doesn't seem fair to me. Well, in verse 13, he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Are you jealous because I'm generous? That one kind of stings a bit right there, doesn't it? Especially whenever you think about it in terms of God. Are you jealous because I'm generous? And then he answers Peter's question from chapter 19. So the last will be first and the first last. Now I want to close with four thoughts from these verses. The first is this. God is faithful to his promises. He promises eternal life to all who Believe in Christ. And heaven is not a performance-based pension. And we have to be mindful that it's not your job to decide who gets to go to heaven and who does not. That God is the one who determines the conditions, the, the, um, the grounds for salvation. And he has told us that it's through Christ. Secondly, God's saving us was not based on our doing. The vineyard had the right to choose to hire whoever he wanted to hire. And verse 3 specifically says these guys were standing around doing nothing. And so God's saving you is not based upon whether you grew up in the church or whether this is your first Sunday. It's not performance-based. It's grace-based. Thirdly, Grace is not driven by fairness. It's driven by God's love. To satisfy God's justice, he sent his son. And we know the story. His son was betrayed. He was beaten. He was barbarically killed. And on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God upon himself. On the cross, he experienced death, and he overcame death through the power of God at the resurrection, satisfying the justice of God that had to be met toward the sin of humankind. To satisfy God's love, he saved your soul. 
And whenever you really begin to understand that I am who I am because of the grace, you begin to realize there is nothing fair about grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. In fact, that's the whole point. It's unmerited favor. God has given you something that you did not deserve. He has extended himself to you. He has given you forgiveness. He has extended love to you. He has been merciful. He has been extravagant in his goodness. And so God forgives the tender nine-year-old who comes to him for salvation. Like my wife did on Easter Sunday many years, I better not say many years ago, but some years ago. And she has her whole life, she had her whole life to live for him. And she would grow up in the church and be a part of the youth group. And she would listen to Petra instead of Van Halen and all that good stuff. But God also forgives the mean-spirited, alcoholic, 70-year-old who comes to him for salvation on his deathbed like my wife's grandfather did. And within the lines of the story, there was also a dear, sweet lady that was my wife's grandmother who prayed for that man year after year that he would come to experience the grace of God himself. And so I go back to my earlier point. God in his goodness has given us something that is better than fair. He has given us grace. And so I close with one final question. In light of what God has done for you, will you live your life full of jealousy, feeling as though you are owed by all? Or will you live your life full of gratitude as one saved by the grace of God? Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band's going to come lead us in a hymn. I'll be here at the front if today needs to be the day where you give your life to Christ. I would love to pray with you and talk with you about that. If there's anything that I might pray with you about in your life, it's always my joy to do so. Heavenly Father, I, I want to stop and just thank you for your love and for your goodness. And I want to thank you, Father, that you have extended to me and to others in this room the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Son. And I pray that we might walk in the power of your Holy Spirit and begin to see life as spiritually minded people that are not merely stuck to the things of this world. Help us to realize that the hundred-year window of our life is not past, present, and future. That our past is grounded in centuries of truth that comes from above. That our current, our present is a gift from you to be lived for your glory. And our future is sealed through Christ to be lived in eternity in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that we might live our lives as spiritually minded people. Help us, Lord, to be grateful. Help us, Father, to be the most thankful people on earth, understanding that we have experienced the greatest gift that life has to offer. 
that we've been touched by grace. And I pray that we might not hoard that grace to ourselves, but instead may we share it with others and take delight in seeing people come alive and really live their lives as one saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for something that is better than justice. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.